This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no flying saucers. This is Encounter 205, Airships Over America. As you might have discovered over the past few months, not everything weird in the sky is a literal flying saucer. Also, weird things in the sky, and people talking about weird things in the sky, didn't just start appearing in the summer of 1947. This week, we're going to look at some of the reports that appeared during the wave of so-called mystery airships that crisscrossed the United States during 1897, particularly um, April of 1897, along with some of the more interesting stories of what they might have been and who might have been behind them. Probably the most well-known 19th century crash of some kind uh, was the 1897 case in Aurora, Texas, but that one is is almost too big and well-known for our purposes this week. I am going to be talking, uh, I did talk a bit about it, rather, in Bonus Encounter 1, and there's all kinds of info about Aurora out there, so you can find it if you want to. By the way, if you've listened to that talk in Bonus Encounter 1 already, You've already heard part of the Lanark, Illinois story, but um, you'll hear more. And for the rest of you, I, I think you're in for a treat with that one. Okay, so April 1897 saw a particularly widespread wave of so-called airship sightings. Some of these stories have a genuine feel of a sighting report that witnesses could not explain. Others, honestly, feel like hoaxes, uh, the kind of hoaxes that emerge once other stories about mysterious airships have hit the paper, sort of a copycat effect. We're going to start with some news reports and then move on to one of the really cool, weird legends that have grown up around this entire airship topic, involving the work of outsider artist Charles Delshaw and the mysterious Nimza. There were reports in the far west early on. But as these airships, or whatever they were, made their way across the Trans-Mississippi West and into the Great Plains, a number of stories, a greater number of stories, rather, began appearing all over the United States. And a lot of the really interesting stories about sightings wherever um, came from the Midwest. So we're going to start in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Cedar Rapids, Iowa, April 9th. The much-talked-of airship has been seen by a number of Cedar Rapids people whose word cannot be doubted. About 8.30 last evening, a bright light was seen in the sky approaching the city from a southwesterly direction by a prominent citizen who called the attention of several others to the object. In a short time, it was slightly west of the city and traveling northward in a very rapid manner and was soon out of sight. At 10.30 o'clock, word was received from Northwood, Iowa, near the Minnesota line, that the ship had just been seen there and was going in a northwesterly direction, flying very low at a fearfully high rate of speed. The ship appeared to be about twice the size of an ordinary star, and at times was quite brilliant. And as sort of an illustration of the way that news spread rapidly and how this was becoming a national story rather than a local one, we see just a day later the Fort Wayne, Indiana newspapers picking up the Iowa story. Fort Wayne, Indiana News, April 9th, 1897. It was seen again. The ship will still pass in the night. Dateline, April 9th. Specials from various points along the Burlington, Cedar Rapids, and Northern Railway give reports of the mysterious airship which has been making its appearance throughout Iowa. 
The strange aerial craft was seen last night by every operator and station agent along the line between West Liberty, Iowa and Cedar Rapids, and they all report the same conditions. A blazing headlight, which reveals in some cases the smooth, dark, wing-like extensions on each side, and a hissing sound as the object glides through the air. The section of Iowa where the ship has been seen is fairly crazy with excitement. People throng the streets of all the towns and villages in hopes of catching a glimpse of it, and the telegraph wires are hot with messages about it. What's funny is the day after that, the Fort Wayne paper um, would have another little bit about the, uh, the airships, and it would be one of the many, many jokes that would connect this airship mystery and these airship sightings to political news and developments. Fort Wayne, Indiana News, April 10th, 1897. The mysterious airship that has been puzzling people of Kansas and Iowa for the past few weeks put in a very busy session last evening, being seen simultaneously at various ports in Iowa, Minnesota, and Illinois. That Chicago should have been included in the itinerary is not strange, as that town has been seeing things ever since Carter Harrison was elected. Carter Harrison here probably refers to Carter Harrison Jr., who took office as mayor of Chicago in 1897. A little aside, during his time in office, tourists could obtain official maps of popular brothels in the city, and Fort Wayne apparently did not approve of these sort of shenanigans that, uh, that Mayor Harrison was overseeing. Most experts at the time believed that uh, what people were actually seeing was the planet Venus, that's something we're going to hear repeated a lot once the flying saucer craze starts up in the 1940s. Other writers, however, in these newspapers, believed that we should anticipate the possibility that there might actually be something besides the planet Venus behind this entire airship mystery. Omaha, Nebraska, World Herald, April 10th, 1897. Mystery of the Airship. A number of newspapers that are now making merry over the foolishness of the people who have mistaken Venus for an airship may soon be called upon to announce that they knew all the time that an airship had been perfected. In this day and age, it is not part of the wisdom to decry an alleged invention. Folk called Cyrus McCormick a fool when they learned that he was trying to invent a machine that would bind grain as fast as cut. Stevenson was jeered at by his neighbors when he said he could make steam haul great loads across the country. Samuel Morse was, at one time, in danger of being sent to an asylum because he insisted that he could send messages over the electric wire. The man who invented the telephone was laughed at when he said he had a machine that would carry articulation over hundreds of miles of wire, and the world stopped whirling when Edison invented the phonograph. Now we have the kinetoscope, the telautograph, the electric motor, and a hundred other things that our forebears would have thought impossible or of the devil. And why not an airship? Of course, Maxim, the great inventor, has failed to make a successful one, but our greatest inventions were not made by skilled inventors. That mysterious light may be the long-sought-for navigator of the air. If it is, the fact is not surprising. It is true that Venus is unusually bright at this time of season, but Venus, despite what the poets say of her, is a staid and respectable body and not given to cutting didos in the upper ether or in the habit of swooping around from one place to another. Venus stays right there. But the mysterious light that is hailed as an airship moves with great rapidity. My favorite airship mystery story actually occurred in Lanark, Illinois, a town of, in 1897, 1,300 residents. It's actually much smaller now. On April 9th, supposedly, 
A craft described as an airship crashed on a farm owned by a Johann Legaltaub, and the local newspaper arrived on the scene. There were four side and one rear propellers on the machine, with a fin-like projection above it, evidently the rudder. An immense hole was torn in the underside of the ship, showing that an explosion had occurred, caused probably by a puncture from a lightning rod in the Flegeltaub barn, as one of them was slightly bent. The strange creature, who in some marvelous manner escaped from the wreck, is now unconscious. He or she is garbed after the fashion of the Greeks in the time of Christ, as shown by stage costumes, and the language spoken was entirely unknown to anyone here, though most people are familiar with high and low Dutch, and even one or two know something of French and Spanish. The remains of the two persons who were killed were taken to the Flegeltau barn and straightened out on boards. It is firmly believed here that the airship was that of an exploring party from either Mars or the moon. The interior was divided into four apartments, one large or general room containing the machinery of the ship, the principal part of which was a powerful electric dynamo, and there was also a tank of air compressed into a liquid. There were windows of heavy glass on each side of the room, two of the other apartments were fitted up as sleeping rooms, and the third was a bathroom. There were many bottles of little pills in a cabinet in the large room, evidently condensed food. I found the unknown wanderer lying on a lounge, and I approached and examined him closely. He was about medium height and of athletic build, with long curled hair, dark brown in color, and an extremely handsome face. He wore a white tunic reaching to his knees, and on his feet were sandals strapped with tinfoil-wrapped braid. The tunic was embroidered with a coat of arms over the breast, a shield with a bar sinister of lynx sausages, and bearing a ham sandwich rampant. A few minutes after I entered the room, he awoke and sat up. Immediately, everyone fled from the room except myself. After looking around for a minute, he said in a language that I knew at once to be Volapuk, Where am I? I answered, Near Lanark, on the earth. And he said he was glad to be there, and asked how it happened. I explained the circumstances to him, and we had a long conversation, a report of which I reserved for another dispatch. But in brief, he told me that he and his companions were an exploring party from Mars, who had been flying about over this country for some weeks. About midnight, he expressed a desire to see his wrecked machine, and I went with him to visit it. When he saw the hole, with his fingers, he bent the torn metal into its proper position, and stepping inside, brought a pot of pasty-looking stuff, which he spread over where the rent had been. He then ran hastily to the barn, picked up the bodies of his companions, and carried them to the ship. Stepping inside, he pulled a lever which set the propellers whirring, and the machine dragged itself from the ground. The operator then reversed the machinery, shouting a farewell to me, slammed the door, and the airship rose rapidly into the air, and finally disappeared into the night, though the red light was for a long time visible. The crowd was awestruck by the proceedings. I myself, to whom nothing is strange, returned to Lanark and, securing a room at the hotel, sat up all night smoking opium and eating hashish to get in condition to write this dispatch. Now, there are a number of issues with the credibility of this story. The uh, hashish, the high level of detail without any subsequent corroboration, and as a friend pointed out to me recently, the reporter's name, General F.A. Kerr, actually spells faker. Volapuk, by the way, is a constructed language, kind of like Esperanto, and it was developed in the late 1800s by a Catholic priest in Germany. Now, how a Martian airship pilot learned it will probably be, always be a mystery, but according to some other reports, the Volapuk language shows up in uh, stories about other airship sightings and encounters throughout the Midwest, in Iowa uh, and in other, other places. 
So there's another report from Lanark a couple days later, and if anything, it was even stranger than the first. Soon after its landing, a man not more than two feet in height came out of the ship. He wore an immense beard of a pinkish hue, and his head was ornamented with some ivory-like substance. He was heavily clothed in robes resembling the hide of a hippopotamus. His feet were uncovered near the ankles, but lashed firmly on the soles were two immense pieces of iron ore. About his neck was a string on which were 234 diamonds. When asked where he came from, he made no reply, being apparently deaf. He said nothing and made motions indicating he wanted something to eat or drink. He drank two buckets full of water and ate three sides of bacon, after declining to take ham, which had been offered to him. For a short time after, three other persons, similar in stature and similarly attired, came out of the ship by means of long, peculiar ropes which reached to the ground. They could not speak or hear. One carried a staff of gold. Special trains were packed with expectant people, including at least two ex-governors and 56 newspaper reporters. A few days later, a brief statement appeared in the paper explaining that the airships had been a hoax. Other strange stories appeared around the same time, including this story of airship-based violence and revenge. Logansport, Indiana Journal, April 14, 1897. Saw the airship, and the occupants took a poke at him, he claims. A stranger with a nasty cut over his right eye drifted into Dr. Hetherington's office last evening and called for surgical attention. The wound required several stitches and appeared to have been inflicted by a cane. But the wounded man, who refused to give his name, declared otherwise. He, he appeared to be too dazed to give an accurate account, but he was under the impression that he had been observing the much-talked-of airship. He declared positively that there were two of them, and that while he watched, a deckhand opened a porthole on the leeward vessel and chucked a coupling pin overboard. When his wound had been properly dressed, he left the office, avowing his intention of hiring an airship at the nearest livery stable and pursuing the careless aerial navigators. At the same time that coupling pins were being chucked at strangers in northern Indiana, it looked like the mystery might be over, if not actually solved. Detroit Evening News, April 14, 1897. Dateline, Galesburg, Michigan, April 13th. If reports from Pavilion Township are true, then the much-talked-of airship was not only a reality, but is now a thing of the past. George W. Summers and William Chadburn, old soldiers, claim to have seen the ship on Sunday evening when they remained up until a late hour in attendance upon a sick horse. The descriptions given by the parties are somewhat at variance, but agree in the assertion that the apparition was illuminated at both ends and moved through space with wonderful rapidity. They had scarcely time for the above observations when a dull explosion was heard, and the object disappeared. They declare the report to have been like that of heavy ordnance, and to have been immediately succeeded by a distant sound of projectiles flying through the air. Wondering greatly, they proceeded to the house, where they passed an excited and sleepless night. When these two men are the only ones who claim to have witnessed the phenomenon, there are many corroboratory circumstances as follows. Mr. and Mrs. Wallace say they heard the explosion distinctly, but thought it was thunder. But the discoveries of the morning were sufficient to establish the veracity of the two actual observers. In one place, two miles from Scott's, there was found a large coil of heavy wire, evidently a part of some electrical appliance. At another point, a propeller blade of very light material was discovered, in a partially fused condition.
Three men, engaged in shingling a barn in Comstock Township, affirmed that upon returning to work on the morning following the occurrence, they found their completed work strewn with minute fragments which had, in some instances, penetrated the shingles and entered the boards beneath. Whatever may be the theories, there is scarcely a doubt that the aerial stranger is gone forever, and that its origin and the experiences of its crew are to remain forever a mystery. The stories got stranger as April wore on, such as this report from the Chicago Tribune. Chicago Tribune, April 16th, 1897. Seize man fishing from air. Occupants of the aerial craft drop a swordfish into the lake and sail away. Dateline, Cleveland, Ohio, April 15th. S.H. Davis of Detroit says that while out on his fish tug, the Sea Wing, yesterday, the fisherman noticed a queer-looking boat not far away. Captain Joseph Singler, master of the tug, and Mr. Davis agreed that it appeared to be about 40 feet in length. It had a cabin covering about one-fourth of the deck, and a man dressed in a checkered hunting suit and wearing a long peaked cap was fishing from the boat. He was apparently about 20 years of age. A handsome woman sat at his side with a boy of ten at her feet. As the sea wing neared the curious craft, a gaily decorated object was slowly inflated and rose to the length of the ropes by which it was attached to the boat. It was a balloon, cylinder-shaped, about fifty feet long. Slowly, the boat rose into the air until it stood directly over the tug, about five hundred feet from the water. It circled like a hawk for several minutes. Suddenly, there was a splash. A large swordfish had been dropped from the airship. The fish was stunned and is now on exhibition in a tank at the fire tug, Cleveland, Ohio. A sail was dropped from the airship, and the mysterious people were carried away by the high wind. Mr. Davis said the boat had a wheel similar to those on steamers. This, it is stated, acts as a propeller in the air as well as on the water. This was one of the events that must have inspired this editorial writer to call for an end to all airship activity although his reasoning was hilarious and, and just really wonderfully tongue-in-cheek. Chicago Tribune, April 19th, 1897. Time for the airship to quit. It is reasonable to expect and hope that the perpetrators of the airship will have the grace to look upon Easter Sunday as the closing day of their season. With spring well underway and soon to merge into summer, the public ought not to be burdened with too great a strain on its patient confidence. The aerial craft has enjoyed a long and entertaining engagement. It has usurped the prerogatives of the birds, stars, and about everything else above the surface of the earth. But its attainments are strictly confined to the ethereal realms, and the time is close at hand when the gaiety of the nation looks for inspiration to the vasty deeps. As much as the airship is cherished by the mass of the people and held in reverent admiration for its ubiquitous achievements, it yet must not intrude on the time set apart by custom for the gambols of that other eccentric wanderer, the sea serpent. At about this season of the year, the great sea monster is accustomed to poke its head up above the surface of the waters at some chosen summer resort and take a preliminary survey of the battleground. This first appearance is much after the style of the traditional spring opening made by the groundhog, but the reptile is not so difficult to please and loses little time in becoming a pretentious show. It is apparent that the picturesque denizen of the ocean would be much discomfited if he found attention diverted from himself to a rival attraction in the heavens. Moreover, the people who spend their time observing these apparitions could not hope to do justice to both at the same time. We advise the airship to retire gracefully before it becomes ridiculous. 
In an excess of zeal, it is showing a disposition to already overdo the business. Some people are beginning to harbor doubts about its genuineness. The occupants are risking their reputations by indulging in hazardous fishing expeditions, catching swordfish and suckers. At other times, they have been evincing a lively ignorance of where they are at. They are plainly rattled and need a rest. In one of its incarnations, the craft appears to have exploded up in Michigan somewhere. That would be an easy and dignified form of exit, and it would be prudent in the management to make an official announcement that owing to this blow-up, performances will cease indefinitely. Down with the airship, and let the sea serpent rise. So the same day that editorial appeared in Chicago, the Louisville Courier-Journal reported a possible source for the airship sightings, at least those that had taken place in or around the Ohio River Valley. Louisville Courier-Journal, April 19th, 1897. Is this it? Belief that an airship is hidden in Kentucky. Invention of Harry Tibbs. He had been working in secrecy for many years. Harry T. Johnson's story. The mystery surrounding the huge airship, which many persons in different parts of the state claim they have seen floating through the air at the height of about 250 feet, has been solved. At any rate, Mr. Harry T. Johnson, who resides on Market Street, below 7th, tells a story which he is positive will disclose the mystery. Mr. Johnson says that in January 1896, he was a member of a fishing party whose camp was located on the shores of Big Lake George in Florida. One day, a stranger came to the camp and asked for a job as general utility man about the camp. The young man possessed a wonderful amount of general information and was extraordinarily intelligent. He was given the job he asked for and in the course of a few days became a great favorite among the boys in camp. He and Mr. Johnson became good friends. He never told his name until one afternoon when the two were left alone in the camp. He then said that he was Harry Tibbs, and said that he was an expert civil engineer and electrician. Tibbs went on to say that he had been working on an airship for years and had exhausted his funds. In order to make more money to perfect his invention, he had gone to Birmingham, Alabama, where he thought he could get work. He was unable to do so, however, and wandered further south, where he hoped to secure employment, save some money, and go back to Cincinnati, where the unfinished airship was stored. Tibbs told Johnson never to mention what he had told him. The young inventor was a great student and was the life of the camp. He remained at Big Lake George for several weeks and then left for Cincinnati. Before his departure, he told Johnson that he had accepted a position as civil engineer for the Brush Electric Light Company on 8th Street in Cincinnati, and that it would not take him long to complete his invention. Then, said he, I'm going to go down into the mountains in Kentucky, make a more perfect machine, and keep it there until I can secure a patent on it. I expect to make several tests of it in Kentucky before I apply for the patent. Not long ago, Mr. Johnson received a letter from Tibbs, which read as follows. I believe the ship is a success. I've made a trip in it by night from Cincinnati to Erie, Pennsylvania, and it works like a charm. You write to me at the address I've given you. If I don't answer you, you may know that I am in your state with the ship. Mr. Johnson says Tibbs once gave him a description of the ship, which coincides precisely with the way it has been described by the persons who claim they have seen it. Mr. Johnson further says that Tibbs is not a crank, as many inventors are, but is an intelligent, bright young man, whose face showed that he had spent days and nights in trying to perfect the invention. Tibbs's idea in going to the Kentucky mountains was to keep anyone from seeing the ship, for he feared someone might get an idea of the plan and beat him to Washington. One thing apparent in the reporting of the April 1897 airship wave was that there was a great deal of political commentary and cartoons that used the imagery of the airships. This was done almost entirely in a humorous way, 
if often a way that is actually now slightly obscure out of the context of 1897 politics, 120 years later. I've put some of my favorite illustrations up on the website uh, in the show entry for this episode, so you can take a look at those. Um, One thing to keep in mind is that 1897, actually the 1890s in general, were one of the most volatile, divisive periods of American political history ever, uh, particularly in terms of um, of socioeconomic strife, uh, labor unrest, things like that. So it's a it's a complicated, very, uh, in some cases, violent time and a very uncertain time for Americans. And there have been lots of studies and lots of speculation about whether or not strange anomalies in the sky sort of appear during these more uncertain times. Um, if they do, I, I think researchers should, I don't know if they have, but I think researchers should uh, look back at this airship wave in the 1890s as, as maybe another, you know, another supply of data points for their arguments about socioeconomic trouble and sociocultural change points and um, anomalous aerial sightings and stories. My favorite, and, and maybe the most sort of offhandedly odd example of the often topical nature of these reports, is something that was reported in a newspaper in Wyoming. Lusk, Wyoming Herald, April 22nd, 1897. Illinois farmhands make affidavit to a strong story. Adolph Winkle and John Hull, farmhands, have made affidavit that an airship landed two miles north of Springfield, Illinois, Thursday. They visited the ship and conversed with the inmates, two men and one woman. They were repairing the electrical apparatus and searchlight of the machinery. They said they came from Quincy in 30 minutes. They will make a report to the government when Cuba is declared free. The ship and occupants left for the south at 1 p.m. The farmer's description is similar to descriptions heretofore given. So in 1897... Uh, April of 1897, we're about a year out from the Spanish-American War. But as we see from this brief snippet, the issue of Cuban independence and and similar things was on Americans' minds to a degree that we often forget about. So where did all these flying devices come from, if they even existed? Like the flying saucer uh, sightings of, you know, that would begin in 1947, you know, 50 years later, the 1897 airships seem to be a blend of satire, hoax, and genuine mystery. It's not outside the realm of possibility that experiments in heavier-than-air flight or advanced balloon technology did exist in secret. One figure whose name has become enmeshed with secret flying craft in the 19th century is an outsider artist, German-American outsider artist named Charles A. A. Dalschau, who was born in 1830 and, and died in 1923. A man named Pete Navarro discovered a number of paintings done by Dalshau that seemed to depict previously unknown flying machines that supposedly dated from the mid-19th century, along with strange, you know, script and writing. Navarro described uh, this situation, which involved a group called the Sonoro Aero Club, in a document that was uploaded to the KeeleyNet BBS bulletin board system in 1992, and portions of this article have shown up in in other versions of the article about uh, Delshaw and the Sonoro Aero Club in um, in other articles and magazines and online. Uh, but the these the earliest version of these words that I've found is in 1992. Um, Navarro discusses that the airships had been flying throughout California in the mid 19th century, 
But you have to wonder, that's the mid-19th century. What we've been talking about is 1897. Were these craft connected to those seen in the 1890s? Were were there some sort of, were they the same people, the same ships? Possibly. It is very possible that these aircraft were the progenitors of the mystery airships that were observed flying over Oakland and other points in California and in the western part of the country in the 1890s. What leads me to believe that there was a connection between these arrows and the mystery airships is the fact that although Del Shao was an avid collector of news stories dealing with airships or anything aeronautical, not one item concerning the mystery airship sightings is to be found among his collection. Could it be that he was reluctant to show any connection because of the fear of divulging matters of secret trust? The reasoning presented here strikes me as a bit odd, but in any case, one of the most interesting things about the Delshaw story is the connection uh, between the Sonoro Aero Club, if it existed, and a possible secret society. It may be said here that members of the Sonoro Aero Club were also adjoined to a secret organization or society known only by the initials N-Y-M-Z-A, which oversaw the workings of all its junior members. They were all subject to strict obedience of the rules imposed by the secret society, and the divulging of its secret operations was not permitted. It was for this very reason that Del Shao kept this all to himself, and eventually, when he decided to write about it, he did it secretly, and this in code and cryptograms and symbols, which only those with the patience and willingness to spend time in deciphering his writings would be able to read and know what had been accomplished by them. So what does NYMZA, or NIMZA, mean? In an article for the Disinfo.com website, Navarro suggested that it might stand for New York Mechanical Zephyr Association, uh, but he acknowledges that's just a complete guess. Researcher and writer Walter Bosley suggests that NIMZA was a Prussian-based organization, that he connects to the idea of a, a technical, technologically advanced breakaway society. More extensive tellings of the Sonoro Nimza story also involve inventions such as an anti-gravity gas. And there's a lot of interesting information out there, and I'll, I'll point you to some resources at the end of the show. Whatever the Sonoro Era Club and Nimza were, if they were anything at all, it's an interesting twist on a not-quite-UFO cul-de-sac. Looking at news reports, the mixture of alarm and amused dismissal All of this really does kind of prefigure the UFO phenomenon in some interesting ways. Throw in tales of little bodies and hoaxed stories. Um, Actually, actually perhaps especially throw in the hoaxed stories. And what we have is a series of events and a series of accounts that illustrate that flying saucers had a prehistory. The stories of little beings and strange craft from the sky did not begin in the 1940s or even the 20th century, and you don't have to go back to the the strange spinning wheel in the book of Ezekiel to illustrate this, but that the airship life actually was certainly connected to the saucer life. If you're interested in the pre-modern era of UFO sightings and related events, um, I suggest you take a look at Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times by Jacques Vallée and Chris Aubeck. It's a good sort of long-term historical overview. There's not a lot of narrative. It's mostly a catalog of events. So if you're looking for interpretation and analysis, it's not, that's not the kind of book it is. Um, if you're interested in Charles Delshaw and Nimza, uh, check out Secrets of Delshaw by Dennis Crenshaw with Pete Navarro. 
it's published by Anomalist Books. Walter Bosley has written many books that are that are full of fun speculative history, uh, such as the Empire of the Wheel trilogy. It's it's intriguing reading. Next time, it's back to the 1950s and back to Detroit as we pick up one of the threads from last week and explore the FBI's investigation of the Detroit Flying Saucer Club. Apparently, they got in trouble for misspelling Vimana on their uh, first magazine cover. That's not true. Uh, But it does get kind of weird. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks especially this time to the Center for UFO Studies, which has a large number of newspaper clippings on the mystery airship wave and also materials on a huge number of other cases. And it's all easily accessible at their website, cufos.com. A 2002 article in Magonia Magazine called Down to Earth, UFO Investigation 1897 Style by Nigel Watson first put me onto the Lanark, Illinois story. And thanks to my pal Adam, who pointed out that F.A. Kerr probably was not a real name. You can follow along with us at saucerlife.com and on Twitter and Instagram at saucerlife. Or you can email us at thesaucerlife, all one word, at gmail.com. We'd love your feedback, so get in touch. If you could rate and review the show on iTunes, Google Play, anywhere else, that'd be great. Sharing and retweeting, we also really appreciate that. If you haven't subscribed using your favorite podcast app or service, please do. It's the easiest way to ensure that you don't miss out on any of the um, action. Sharing and retweeting of links of episodes, we love that. Saucer Life is also on Stitcher. According to Stitcher's website, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to this show plus 65,000 other shows. If your life is empty enough that this excites you, feel free to check it out at Stitcher.com. The Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production. And till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies are watching you.